This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. This podcast was recorded on traditional Denizal land. the piece. I'm Jenna Moreland and I'm here with my co-host and producer of the podcast, Trey Lapashinsky. Well, hello, Jenna. How are you doing today? That was super creepy. Yeah, well, I said that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> hello, all you listeners out there. <laughs> Here's the sweet You sounded chant. like, um, pre- hello, Clarice. Hello, Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we have an exciting episode for you today. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation with Clarence Obsassin, a Blueberry First Nations member and a former headman of the Tri- Treaty 8 Tribal Association, which he helped form. Uh, he wore so many hats, like, there's so many stories he had for us, and it's also the first episode we've had to go um, over an hour. We talked to him for two hours, unfortunately, we had to cut a lot of stuff out, but he, like I said, he did many things, he was active in the energy sector with his own company, he is also a hockey coach of the Weekend Warriors, who recently competed in the Senior Native Provincial Championships, and he was a rodeo cowboy. Competed all over North America. It's crazy the stories he told us on and off the mic. Yeah, we learned a lot about Clarence during this episode, and one thing is for (laughs) sure, he loves talking. (laughs) He had so many funny stories to tell us before we even had a chance to start recording. And some of the stuff we had to cut out includes uh, talking about the hockey team he was part of in the 80s and some of his stories on the energy sector. Uh, he, He also had this really, really funny story, which I am going to put after the extra of this episode. So it's going to go a little longer. But it's only like a part of the story. It's only... We, <laughs> we, we didn't start recording. Yeah, because he was just talking to us, and then I started recording because I was like, oh, this is hilarious. <laughs> and it, what it's about is um, he took a group of elders to Vancouver, and it was one of their first times out of the region. So they had band members kind of watching over them, helping them out. Eventually, he lost track of the elders and spent hours looking for them until he eventually found them at a strip club. <laughs> and now his version of the story is way funnier, so I we have to put it in. And it's going to be after the extras, so make sure you uh, keep your ears peeled uh, after the, the actual interview. We have lots of exciting stuff coming up. In fact, right after we record this, we're going to head out to Saquois to chat with the archaeologist that was one of the first to work on the Charlie Lake cave in the 80s and next week trey and i are headed to healing the hoop conference here in town it's been a busy month yeah yeah (laughs) so we got lots of stuff coming up so keep checking back and of course this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of troyer ventures troyer has been serving our community and the energy industry with tank and back trucks since 2000 they are built on the principles of hard work service and community and they are proud to offer the financial support to make this program possible and make sure you guys follow us on twitter i just created a new account for before the peace this is going to have all of the information on upcoming episodes and new episodes and all the good stuff so follow us at before the peace underscore and now let's get to clarence obsessed so you're originally from blueberry river first nations yeah um and we hear you have a very large family 22 siblings um can you tell us just a little bit about your upbringing 
Well, my upbringing was, uh, I was raised in, in the trap line with my grandpa and my dad. We used to walk from the old village in Blueberry, which was about 65 miles plus. And we, it would take us three days, sometimes four days to go to the trap line. And those days we didn't have no vehicles. So pack our bags with salt, pepper, tea, sugar, all the essentials, knives, um, our guns, our 22 shells, our snares, and we would take a roll of tarp, about this wide, roll it up good. Then we'd take our Hudson Bay blankets, roll them up, and that was it between the three of us. That's all we packed. And we would pack all the way up there. We didn't take no food. We took, sometimes we would be lucky we get salted bacon, we take that. And mostly it was flour, bacon powder, salt and pepper, sugar, that kind of stuff, essentials. And everything else came from the bush. Wild chicken, rabbits, moose. That was our grocery store all the way up there. And we would stay down there for months at a time in the bush. There's trapping for fur. Um, How old were you when you first started doing 10 the Ten years old. Okay. Yep. Earlier than that, um, about eight I remember, as far as I can remember, um, Roy Obsassin, uh, my uncle Roy, used to take us up to the trap line with uh, the dog sled, dog dog team and dog sled. They used to make their own toboggans out of birch. They, they would cut a tree about this big, chop it up to thin like this, put two together, bend it. They would soak it in water and bend it dry like that and that's how the toboggans were made with birch and out of that same birch they made snowsuits their own snowsuits our own snowsuits we'd weave it uh, uh, whittle it about like like that both sides about that wide kind of shaped like this long so that you don't trip so that's how we lived right up to uh, I would say 70s back and forth but in between that time they used to come and get us uh, to go to the Catholic school um, in uh, first it was Blueberry school and then the Catholic school here in 1965 I remember 66 they took me to Vancouver in a plane here and they there used to be a hotel called Blair Hotel you know where the cultural building is? Mm-hmm. Behind there used to be a black hotel. And they put me in there, and I couldn't understand because I couldn't understand English at that time. And I was put in this room by myself, and I was trying to break out of there, <laughs> trying to go home. So Why did they put you in there by yourself? I have no clue. Oh. But all I, I didn't even long? know where they were taking me. This Later on in the years, I find out it was Vancouver. Uh, they put me either in a um, hospital or mission school, I think it was. Mm. I remember that. There was a bunch of kids there. And they would keep us there, and it was the priest and the nuns that kept us. And um, I remember the noises, the kids screaming at night, going down the stairs. Kids were hungry. They used to feed us spoiled porridge for three days and we wouldn't eat it we would hide it because we wouldn't eat it 
and we would be hungry for a long time. Why wouldn't you eat it? Spoiled. Mm. They gave us spoiled bread, oh. spoiled uh, porridge, and uh, that's the way. Uh, that this was in the sixties. I'm talking. About. So wait, was this a residential school or Mission BC? I'm pretty sure of it. Yeah. Well, just just from the sounds of it, even with the food and and you know yeah. people we have talked to, past guests have said. Um, even when we we read uh, Uliman's fatty book, legs, yeah, yeah, with fatty legs, the food was so like they didn't get good food. Yeah, like <laughs> no, the there was no nutrition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was basically because there wasn't a lot of money coming to the residential school from the governments and from the church as well. They didn't want to spend any money they had on the kids. On yeah, the kids. Oh. yeah. So it was difficult. Um, there used to be some kids that spoke my language there, and we would huddle together and, you know, talk. And and lucky for us in Mission there, I think it was Mission, I'm pretty sure of it, um, there used to be orchards beside us there. And at nighttime, we would, uh, there was five of us, two on guard and two to go into the garden and one to keep a eye out for the uh, priest. And we'd go... Um, I guess you can say steal fruit to feed the kids that were really hungry. So we did that. And we'd sneak back in and pass out the fruit. And, oh, my God, the kids would, uh, I think we like we would probably take about 40 apples, cut them in half secretly, and then feed the kids. Then, so you were kind of a leader even when you were a kid. I guess you can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there were certain times that the, the I remember those priests and those nuns would go to bed. And then there's one watchman, and we used to keep an eye on him. And he would fall asleep right around 11 o'clock. So we'd wait till he fall asleep. And then we'd sneak, sneak down. We'd barefoot sometime. And where they couldn't, uh, like, we figured out where uh, the stairs wouldn't squeak. We figured that out, so we'd take those steps to go down down below. And then from there, out, out the building. But they didn't have no alarm system back in those days. They used to have chains to lock the doors. But we picked the locks. There was one kid, I remember, that was so good at picking the locks. So we'd, he, he would be the the lock guy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Did, did you ever get caught? We never got caught. But only once we just about got caught where the, um, um, the uh, where they had, we had walnuts and uh, we had to break those. And then somebody left a couple pieces on the floor. So when the, the nun came in there and said, where'd this come from? We said, we don't know. So she picked it up and threw it in the garbage, so she never investigated it. So that's a closed one. So after that, we made sure everybody picked up after themselves. And Did you have any siblings there with you? No. 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 I think Linda, my cousin Linda, was one up there too. I can't remember. I know she was taken over there somewhere. Linda Chapisi. But I remember kids from everywhere. Like, they mentioned where they come from, but I wouldn't know where. All I remember is um, we planned on to escape this place. 
but we couldn't escape it because we didn't want to leave the rest of the kids in back there because you know nobody would feed them so we could have escaped but to walk back from now that I know the place from Vancouver cut across the country wouldn't I don't think we would have made it yeah that's that's a long way yeah through the mountains and the snow I don't think so and that was in the 60s Uh, yeah in the 60s 66 67 68 Okay. So you were so you were there till sixty nine. No, I was there for two years. I think okay. it was a year and a half, two years. And then my mom and them told me later they fought for me to get me back. So I don't know the, how they did it. What was the feeling like when you got home, specifically tasting food from home? I, I'm just so curious because you hear a lot about the food in residential schools, and I mean that's the small part of it, but. What was it like to be back home in your culture and, and to taste the food that you grew up loving? Oh, my God. I think I ate for two days straight. <laughs> <laughs> Serious. I bet. The bannock, the moose meat, the wild game meat. I think that's why we were so healthy. But one good thing they did in the in the residential school and the blueberry school back then was they used to give us uh, hot liver oil was an awful tasting liquid they give you in a tablespoon and you swallow it was fish oil or something but man I kept us healthy I think hmm. yeah going back to the food more so resources in general in blueberry first nation do you think with having so many siblings you know right now we hear 22 siblings and we're like oh my goodness but because indigenous peoples were so self-sustaining that it wasn't abnormal to have that many kids you guys were able to provide well the 22 siblings I talk about we didn't all grow up together Okay. on my mom's side my sisters, my brother uh, Donovan Johnny Boy uh, we lost some uh, kids there and that's my mom's side of the family and then there's my dad's side of the family from Kelly Lake and then on top of that, uh, uh, my mom and dad that raised me from Blueberry, the elders, was 40, about 44 is what my mom said. They all grew up before me. They were all adults from the time I, I came along and stuff. So I grew up with uh, the last of my family back then in the 70s, 60s and 70s, was Mabel Harvey and Erna uh, Erna ended up marrying with my uncle Roy. Uh, she was a Kutri family from Moberly Lake. Uh, Erna and um, uh, Mabel Harvey they go by, and they were raised in um, Nanaimo. Hmm. Okay. For they got taken away and then they were where they raised them, and then and when they got older, they ended up back home with us. But it was different. It was like a torn up family put back together. It's hard to describe um, when you love your siblings that you don't see your siblings, you know they're over there and you can't get them. Um, I remember often lots, I go up top the hill in old Blueberry Village there, sit up there, play the guitar and wonder about my family. You know, where are they? And half of my family grew up in 64 there, my mom's side of the family, my sisters, and then down here. 
There used to be a place called Bobby Apartments in Fort Jane John here. That's right by Dairy Queen there, just up the street. And that's where they grew up. And we were we grew up pretty rough. On a reserve, it was pretty good the way we grew up. But when you lived in town, a lot of social issues back then. Alcohol, drinking, partying with, you know, kids and stuff. It was quite different than in today's world. Today, you can never get away with that. But back then, it was just... Uh, happened that way. I've, but, heard, I've heard it referred to as the wild, wild west. Yeah. Fort St. John back. Yes. And, and the laws and the rules... Were, uh, and the people themselves, when they were drinking and partying, was quite different than in today's world. They were more of uh, happy drunks, I guess. Like, um, even in people in Fort St. John, when all this was happening, there was no bad people. There was a few, but they never bothered. There was a lot of discrimination, racial activity, and stuff like that, but it wasn't... How do I describe it? Um, tough to live. <coughs> Excuse me. And would this, like, when was the, so there was a curfew at one point. You said, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording. Wh- how old were you when that was in place? Jeez, that was in 1974. And that was in Fort St. John, right? Yep. Well, the, after I got back from Vancouver, <coughs> after I got back from Vancouver, I think it was 68, 69. I'm not, I don't know the exact date. But they brought me back to Blueberry. And from Blueberry, again, they picked us up, put us into the town school here, the Macalada Catholic School. And that's where my abuse started back then with the uh, a nun we used to call her sister mary didn't give us didn't give her a name but she started abusing me and uh that's when i used to live with harry charchuk family the charchuk family they were um ukrainian people they treated me very well though that that family the charchuk's in town here but i didn't tell them what was going on i was uh i was ashamed to and i didn't want to cause trouble and um in that era is when this curfew used to be a big siren here somewhere. I can't remember exact spot. Big speaker in there and it would go off at 8 o'clock. Then you had one hour to get home after that. And if you're not, if you don't go home and curfew, you get picked up. They used to scare us. I know they did nowadays. They used to say, if you don't go home, you're going to go to jail. Army jail, they used to say. So it was the army that put the curfew on. Yep. Yeah. Was this only for non-indigenous or, no, or everybody. Sorry, for indigenous or everyone? In everyone oh, okay. in Fort Change on. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, that was a rule for, I swear, right up to 1978, mm-hmm. 77. No, it can be maybe 76. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had a lot of females around you, a lot of sisters growing up. <laughs> what was that like? Can you tell us some stories about that? Well, my sister Mabel and Erna, I grew up with them. And um, um, my aunties and stuff. Well, I used to get picked on by women. But they taught me a lot, too. They taught me how to ride horses. 
He taught me how to play the guitar. And I remember uh, they used to have those uh, players filter cigarette tin cans. I don't know if you guys would ever remember them, but they were about that big. And tin can with uh, you know tobacco in it. And milk cans. I remember those being at like every corner of my grandma's house. Yeah. <laughs> and they would cut thin strips like that and about that long, about the length of the can, metal. They would cut them up and they would heat those up in a wooden stove. And that's what they curled their hair with. They would take those, heat them up and oh wrap them gosh. up. Wrap them up in that, uh, you know, the old Hudson Bay um, paper bag, the brown ones. Yeah. They would wrap them up after they heat them up, and then they would curl their hair with that. Oh, my goodness. That's the way they used to curl their hair. And they used to comb their hair on top of their head like a loaf of bread on top of their head. they just go like this, and then they use one whole can of spray, well, hairspray, I think it was, that they used to use. They would spray their hair, and I remember my mom used to get mad at them. What the hell's the matter? What you guys spraying on your head now? Oh, man, the 80s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then they would go to town all dressed up, fancy dresses and fancy jackets. But they used to have to hitchhike from Blueberry, Butte Creek Road. It was dusty. So they would hitchhike to town. Well, by golly, by the time farmers give them ride into the gravel road and dusty roads back then, in 73 there, when they get to town, they're just covered in dust. Eh? At one time, I'm not kidding you, that we hitchhike into town and I turn around and I see my sisters. They're just full of dust and they're just, their eyeballs just moving like this and dust coming off. Oh, my God. I said, I told you guys. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was just uh, some comical days, you know, those days. It was so different. And, uh, no TVs, no reserve. Um, all we ha- had was radios, the old-style tube radios. And we would listen to country music, and that's why I think a lot of First Nations were very talented in music, because that's all we had was music, playing the guitar or fiddle or something. And um, we never watched TV until we graduated here in Fort St. John when we start move- they started moving us into in the 70s when they uh, put us in homes. And then we, that's when we seen the TV. And I used to go touch the screen. I said, how do those people get in there? <laughs> you know, that's the first time. <laughs> and uh, Harry Trachik would smile at me. He said, they're not people in there. They make shows and then they put them on here. And I would look behind there. He said, how the hell they get in there? <laughs> so even the elders, when they first watched TV, it was like that. He said, man, those white people are really magical. <laughs> they put people in a... They said in a small box, and you, you know, and they make you laugh. So it's just um, how the uh, era changed. Even in my time, it was like that. Man, so many discoveries, like how much you would have seen in your life. Like even just what you were saying, how different Fort St. John looked from when you were first just a kid to now is just so stark difference. Yes, and I remember one time... Jerry Davis and my uncle Russell, when they were teenagers, they were older than us. They went to work for a farmer by Bue Creek. So they worked for this car. It was a 56 Chevy Bel Air, two-door hardtop. They went and fenced for the farmer, picked rocks all summer, so they got this car. So they came home with the car. 
about a month later that car broke down and in, in this car it's an automatic but they push it and you put it in gear it would start that's the way they built the transmissions back in the day automatics it's just like standard oh. you just throw it in gear and it'll, it starts oh okay so it broke down on them at blueberry reserve i remember when i was a kid and they were trying to fix it nobody knew how to be a mechanic too so all they had was crest and rents pair of pliers and haywire but they took the uh, the cover off the tappet cover and one of those lifters came off it bent so they're trying to figure out how to fix this so they they, they wired it up they put this tap it on top of the push rod like this and they wired it up really good thinking it would stay there and with one wrench they did that and they took everything off they put it back on and um, first it didn't make no sound it was okay so when they start driving and you can just hear it banging again and stuff like that so they threw that car away in the middle of the road he said ah what? you know they know nothing about it so we had in the old village by my grandma's just like a I would say like a car lot. So every time a car breaks down, they just leave it. So we push it into this place, and all those old cars were in mint condition. Like, you know, even in the 80s, we, they were still sitting there. And nobody knew the uh, how those cars would be worth a lot of money today. And then, at that era, is when those kids grew up with 22s hunting rabbits, and they would shoot the cars, and wow too bad yeah what did you do for work growing up Clarence I worked with my uh, uncle Roy my grandpa Edward my grandpa Dan uh, uh, picking roots for farmers stooking they used to have the old trashing machines you you know you see those hmm. sitting around nowadays they used to we that's what we used so we would feed that with oats and then we'd stook the uh, we would stook the bundles they call it it was just a round bundle like this, and then, you know, you stoop those or dry it up, and then you do the trashing in the, in the, in the fall time. That was our economic, um, um, that's how we made our, our living. It wasn't very much. At one point, we were making five bucks a day, and then at one point, it was two cents uh, a stook. And then um, sometimes the farmers would just pay us with food, and that was good. Um, trade us for potatoes. We would trade for moose meat and potatoes, that kind of stuff. And how old were you when you like first started to get into the rodeo circuit? Oh man, I was a late bloomer. Um, I didn't start till I was probably seventeen, eighteen. Okay. Yeah. And that must have been so hard on your body. So bareback riding, right? Well, like I was saying a little bit earlier. We had horses. My grandpa had horses. My other grandpa Dan had horses. My dad had horses. Everybody on the reserve had horses. So we were horsemen already. Every day we rode horses. We rode horses hunting. We rode horses playing games. We rode horses every day. Elders used to get so mad at us. They said, leave those horses alone once in a while. We, every day from dusk till dawn we're on horses. So we were horsemen. So when they, I graduated into a rodeo here in Fort Jean John back in the day when I was a kid, I said, one day I'm going to try that. And my mom used to say, nope. 
You ride horses, saddle horses. I get that. (laughs) As a mother, I get that. (laughs) It's not safe. So I would talk to my dad, and I said, I want to try it someday. So when you get a little bit older, you get a little stronger, maybe. So I did get a little older and went rodeoing. So 18 is late? 18 is late, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And there was obviously no safety gear or anything back then. No. (sighs) You had your spurs, your shafts, and your rigging and your gloves. There was no safety vest, nothing. That's how we rode. I mean, there's a lot of people in Fort Jane John here that I grew up with, like the Bush family, Gardner family, uh, uh, Bacon family, Stewart family, lots of families here from back in the day that uh, rodeoed. And I traveled with those same boys for years in NRA circuit here. And I ended up being um, top amateur rodeo cowboy here from the north in NRA with a lot of these guys like Brian Gardner, Ed Gardner, um, Daryl Bush, Boyd Bush, oh, so many Pomeroys and um, stuff like that. So I had to learn that in NRA. So I start from NRA, I became top three uh, on uh, the circuit and start winning championships and stuff. Then I moved on to another rodeo association, tried it there, then Interior Rodeo Association, BCRA, they call it today. And then I tried the Indian Circuit also in Alberta. And then I just branched out from there and started. What was it like, I guess, would it be called touring, I guess, or just like riding the rodeo circuit? I don't know competing, really what it, yeah, competing. Yeah, competing. Yeah. I'm not sure, but like, were you kind of like almost like a rock star? Because I feel like a lot of these cowboys that are traveling and they're partying and, you know, like, it, what was it like being on the rodeo circuit with the other guys? Oh, my God. You know, um, uh, there is some party and some cowboys did party, some didn't. And some of the guys like myself and um, um, uh, the Mills family, they took, we took it very serious. Um, there wasn't much party. We'd have a few drinks and then, you know, the wild ones. But it was the adrenaline. Oh, my God. I cannot explain the adrenaline when I nod my head on a oh, bareback horse. They open the gate. <laughs> yeah. And, and especially if you're in control. Oh, my God. It's such a sensational feeling that... You cannot describe it. What other way can you describe something that's... It just makes you want to go again and again and again. It just You just can't wait till next weekend. You're going to three rodeos and the adrenaline is there. I used to get butterflies before I hit the rodeo grounds a day before. My stomach would... And I felt this sensation and I knew I wouldn't get bucked off. You just had that feeling of... of um, you know... You're going to do it. You know you're going to write whatever they put underneath you. It was that. It wasn't about the money. It was about just being part of the rodeo circuit and part of traveling with the boys, Mm -hmm. the jokes, the laughs when you're traveling down a road, the things that you do and stuff like that and mixing up with the cowgirls and, you know, or going to some honky-tonk and picking up somebody and... They say, oh, yeah, we seen you right at that other rodeo, and you were so good, and that kind of stuff, you know. So um, back in the day when I rode, 
circuits didn't pay too much. You're you're looking at two hundred fifty dollars split, splitting between three ways. And then your entry That's fee was rough. Oh my goodness! And your entry fee was cheap back then. Was like twenty five bucks, fifteen bucks, depends where you are. Today, your entry fee is two fifty, two eighty, three hundred. But the money you're making today is eight thousand, ten thousand, two hundred fifty thousand. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. The 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 latter that you become more professional in the in the like a world professional circuit. You get up there, millions of dollars. So, you were you weren't a career cowboy. Like, did you did perform in the rodeo circuit? But outside of the rodeo, did you have a specific career, or was that just kind yes, of? Yes, I was a tribal chief when I rodeoed at the same time. So I did politics, did my business, and I took on that responsibility, not only to help my people, but to make money take me down the road. So if you're not winning money in a circuit you got to pay for it it's no nobody pays for your travel nobody pays for your gas nobody pays for anything you pay your entropy you pay your gas you pay your food so if you if you don't take it serious you make no money you have to look at it as a job and when you're doing your job you get serious about it but at the same time it's the adrenaline and the fame and you know <coughs> the um oh my god there's so many things i can um, um attest to that that feeling is such a great feeling that when you're recognized by other people or circuits when you get invited to go down there because you're good um um you didn't have to brag they just knew you were good, and you get invited, and that's how you do it. You didn't say, oh, I won the championship, and, you know, and stuff like that. I remember top three in the NRA circuit here from Fort St. John going to the world championships in El, in El, uh, El Paso, Texas, back in 1985. The feeling of going there, getting selected, making the top three in your event, to represent your hometown here in Fort St. John and Canada, to go down there is the most beautifulest feeling. Then you're competing against everybody else in the country. United States, Nevada, Philadelphia, California, uh, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan. There were so many Canadian cowboys that we met up over there. It was just amazing. So you mentioned <clears throat> that while you were rodeoing, you were the Treaty 8 uh, tribal chief. Um, what's what's the difference between a headman versus chief? Or is it the same thing? It's the same thing. It's just the word. Uh, we call it Kanigannapit, Sonialgamal, or um, uh, there's no really word for chief. Um, chief came from the English terminology. Um, we would have to say, Kaniganapit, that means a person sits in, in front of all of us. and um, Or else you would say, I see no Kanata squeak, a person that can speak really good for you. Um, those were the, uh, the leaders, but they call him chief. But they used to call him headman too. 
back in 1899 when the treaty was signed, uh, Chief Sakona from the Doig River First Nation was the chief, and my great-grandfather, Joel Sasson, back in the 1800s, signed the treaty. They used to call him Headman. Mm, on the treaty. On the treaty. Mm-hmm. So he actually signed the treaty in 1899, my great-great-great-grandpa. So he's famous. They used to call him Matatale in the beaver language. Matatale means your red beard. Matatale? So, matatale. Matatale. Yeah, Matatale is his beard is red. And why they call him that when it's sunny out, when he looks a certain way, it looks like he's got red red uh, whiskers. But he was a big man. He was also called uh, um, Little Big Man because he was a big man. Yeah. And what are the responsibilities of a Treaty 8 tribal chief? <clears throat> There's many things... Um, uh, the, uh, and the Treaty 8 was first formed in 1980 by Richard Bain, Dean Doki, myself, Ruby, uh, Ruby, Bain, Ruby Doki, uh, Carolyn Doki, I mean, <clears throat> Amy Gaucher. We signed, uh, uh, we, we formed Treaty 8 Tribal Association in the 80s. And when we formed Treaty Tribal Association in the 80s, we had an office, you know where that no frills is across the street, that mm-hmm. building? Mm-hmm. That used to be our office downstairs. Mind you, we rented that place for 150 a month back in those days, but it was empty for two years. It was just a Treaty Tribal Association, that's it. We didn't have uh, people working in there until after two years. We decided to... Uh, to try to look after our own affairs, our own programs, our own uh, try to get money from the government. And at that time, the government was very cheap. For example, to do economic development within Treaty 8 territory up here with all seven bands, $5,000. That's it. Hmm. We weren't in paid positions as leadership. It was, they gave us honorariums of 300 a month I think it was and you have to go to work to to be a leader same time <clears throat> it wasn't paid positions but slowly we grew and we started bringing in funding to help our people in like social welfare uh, education housing um, for example on a reserve housing, we don't get free housing. Everybody thinks we get free housing. We pay mortgages on there. And today's mortgage, mind you, it's low mortgage, 750 800 a month. And then on top of that, we pay for our infrastructure and everybody pitch in $200 a family right now today to get to keep our water and sewer going and stuff like that. And, uh, and back in the uh, um, 70s and this late early 70s and late 70s <coughs> we didn't have no infrastructure it was just housing water came in later our bathrooms were all outside and this was out at blueberry yeah okay yeah and um, mind you because the elders didn't believe in bathroom in a house that you can't live like that. You can't have a bathroom in a house. It's got to be outside and away. And that's what they believed in for years. So when they start building bathrooms 
in these houses. A lot of them wouldn't move in. Did they, was it just like, uh, why? It's the outhouse mentality. Right? Yeah, yes. like, like the day, keeping the outhouse. separation. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. You can't have a toilet in, a, in your dwelling. Hmm. I said, why would you do that? That our toilet should be half a mile away somewhere. You know, and then the concept was when you built the toilet outside, when you went to the bathroom, you, you finish with that, you cover it up with dirt, and then it redevelops again. Mm-hmm. Where in, in today's world, you mix it with so many chemicals, you can't do that. So that was the idea of sustaining. You're still cultivating the land and you're still maintaining it that way. Is what they were thinking back then. So, for example, we used to hunt in a seven-generation, seven-year um, uh, environmental protection. First year, we hunt here. Second year, here. Third year fourth year, fifth year, sixth year, seven years. After seven years here, where you started would have regenerated in seven years again. And that's for the habitat, like the the animal habitat at that time? Yes, yes, animal habitat and also the uh, wild uh, environmental grass, trees, water. You don't pollute the water, you don't dirty the water, that kind of stuff. Was that specifically moose and caribou, which is obviously a little bit of an issue in the north I, a little bit i mean it's a big issue in the north right now but was it to maintain those habitats for specifically moose and caribou uh well it was just about for everything oh, okay it wasn't just specific for moose mm. we knew wildlife move around mm-hmm. you know wildlife doesn't wouldn't stay here in the first year to wait for us for seven years no they would go wherever but the idea was just to um replenish right and uh and one of the things that uh, we always were very careful was water we don't pollute the water because that water is going to sustain your kids your kids my kids our grandkids if we don't protect those things what are they going to use what are they going to drink right we're getting to that stage in today's world where even the oceans are getting so polluted pretty bad. Uh, where's the water going to come from? Mm-hmm. Fresh water and stuff like that. And even in today's world, we drill and, you know, fracking and stuff like that. They put poisons down there. It's got to come up somewhere. Um, I heard a lot of stories about that. I don't know if there's any proof where farmers, animals get deformed. And um, I don't know how true that is. But so you were were you a treaty eight tribal chief at the time when you went to germany is that why you went to germany um we went to germany because of gary oker gary oker set that um um germany with the government german government and um they wanted to see first nations because german people are very fascinated with first people um, in, in in germany from the stories that uh, this guy that uh wrote stories who was in jail in Germany and he wrote stories about cowboys and Indians. He made these stories up, but he, his, his books became famous. So we went, uh, got invited to go down there to do a tour in Germany. We went to the world's largest Equitana days in Frankfurt, Essens and Dusseldorf. That's where we were. And it was so amazing for me to see uh, the German country and I think the Berlin Wall was still up, and uh, how they lived. And we, we actually have German people 
living in teepees like we are up here all year round. They're mm. dressed like us, they're regalia. And of course, some of the German people said, don't go bother those people, they're crazy. But we didn't, we went and visited them anyways. So they, they did ceremonies, they did, wow. they did smudging. Hmm. Uh, it was a little bit different, but their, you know, their outfits were made with uh, um, tan hides and stuff like that, you know, it were, they weren't done originally. So anyways, we went visit them and we tour in their village and they lived like that all year round, summer and winter in teepees. It was a, really, I was amazed with that, how much they, um, I would say copy us, but they were fascinated with the, the story this guy died or anyways, about his cowboys and Indian stories. So a lot of them still think we live in actual teepees in Canada when we went there. We said, no, we live in houses now. And they would come touch us, our regalia, and took pictures of us. And then we had uh, <clears throat> two bus loads, I think, two van loads of um, girls and everybody else followed us around on that tour, everywhere we went. <laughs> then they they signed a contract with us to make a, a movie, which we did. We took part in that movie. Mm-hmm. And, like, they wanted me to, me and Gary to gallop on a bareback horse what's the movie called i don't even know oh <laughs> and uh i need to look into this <laughs> yeah, they had uh, on the side of the hill they had an indian village made and the stagecoach would come in there and we would stake that stagecoach and then in the equitana days we chased a stagecoach around the big arena like this then we would shoot with a bow and arrow into the haystack yeah. So it Did almost you, sounds oh. like, the, like sorry, um, it almost sounds like they treated you like royalty in a way. They did. So why do you think their view of Indigenous peoples is, like, why, why are they so fascinated? Well, I wanted to go off that, too, because I feel there's must be a fine line because part of me was thinking it's cultural appropriation. Yeah, a little bit. But it's not like they're taking bits and pieces. They're fully immersing themselves in the culture. So were you guys at all finding that that was an issue or like it just seems like a different situation that i haven't heard of well we didn't find it offensive we didn't find it an issue we just were fascinated that people in germany actually want to live like us Hmm. actually portray how we lived in the past and um so we welcomed them we we went to their teepees we smoked with them we explained to them how it really is and stuff like that and uh i i I found it very um um the german people treated us so good it wasn't even funny the hotel the meals um like everybody wanted to meet with us Uh, we danced with the government for the government and stuff with the powwow dancing and stuff we've got i've got newspaper clippers from germany that stick at home Box. How, how different Canada would be if we treated Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. in the same way. And I think the biggest thing, just again going off with cultural appropriation, I I think the problem there is people are taking bits and pieces of cultures and then using it for <coughs> yeah. their own gain in some way. Whereas this, it seems like, hey, they're not being publicized. It's like coming it. from a genuine yeah, place. Yeah, they just yeah. genuinely want to live like that. It's just, it yeah, sounds that, so interesting. It's it's not only interesting, but it, I was totally amazed by the fact that they actually lived, they didn't have no stoves, they had a, 
fire in the middle of the teepee. That's where they cooked their food. Everything they did was exactly the way we lived. Wow. It was, I was amazed by that. And we were all amazed by that. And But the people in Germany, uh, looking at their own people doing that, they thought we were, they were, um, um, how we, there's a word for it, um, making fun of us, or they were. Chastised. Yeah, um, yeah. But they weren't. We didn't feel it. That, we didn't feel that way. So they it's were not really, like they were belittling you or looking down on you. It's like the, you guys were together as well. Yes. Almost, yeah. The same yeah. Level. Yep. So we were amazed with that, and uh, um, the German culture. I was very fascinated with, and their their trees, their black forest. They took me there, and the trees are lined up like this for miles, just going down a hill. You could just see for miles trees. And the reason why, I asked a lot of questions on that because I want to practice that here now, now that we got a chance in Blueberry, is to mulch all the stumps down, clean up the, the, the logging areas, and then a re, re, reforestation program, uh, plant trees. The reason Germany did that, they cleaned everything up like that, is that uh, the growth of the trees were faster, they were saying, telling us. Like I, we didn't know none of that stuff. So I was just talking about this here with some people about a month ago. See, we need to clean up all our logging areas, all the debris, all the stumps, and let the trees grow. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So. I want to go back uh, to talk about the Treaty of Travel Association and, and just what you guys did as a whole. So you wouldn't govern the First Nations, but it was more so provide services to help out every First Nation within Treaty 8. Yes. At the beginning, uh, when we formed the Treaty of Tribal Association, the idea was to get all the bands working together to provide program services for themselves. And then we would bring it in. We would uh, be just an arm of the communities over there to provide service. The idea was to bring in the funding through Treaty 8 and then the funding be put back into the communities. And that was the, the whole idea. And there was a lot of talk about self-governing processes back then. But when you read the treaty in terms of the self-governing process, the self-governing process with the government is totally different than what we view as self-governing process. We talk a lot about um, self-governing in traditional fashion. In a traditional fashion, there's not really a government structure. There is, but there isn't really the way they see government structures in today's world. Um, when you um, uh, appoint a leader, you appoint a leader who's a good hunter. That's who the, uh, the leader would be. To provide in the community. That's his job. Then he would have a band of people underneath him to go hunting to do that. Then you have another one for trapping. Then you have another one for something different. So it wasn't like one chief. One chief became, was a, a warrior chief. He was a chief. But the elders were the actual leaders. They were the ones that were guiding us. Are you going to piece of Kleenex off you there? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's how it was done. It wasn't done like the way the... The government structure, governments, today's world, it was quite different in terms of our structure. The women were 
honored in our communities back in the day. And the women were very strong in our communities. They were honored because they brought life into this world, and that's the way it was. So they were kind of bosses of the of the uh, um, the uh, warriors, and um, and the the men would be their job is to provide to the communities. We had a welfare system where if they're single parent in our community, everybody provides to that single parent, single mom, single dad, and they would get food and they would give to them. Uh, they would look after the kids, uh, stuff like that. It was a, a system where <clears throat> every community member in that community disciplined those children, anybody's children. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, don't bother my kid. If they see a child doing something wrong over here, whoever happens to be there disciplines that child. Close net, kind like of the whole yeah. family, right? Yeah, and kind of the whole like it takes a village kind of thing. Yes, <laughs> to raise yes, a kid. yeah. And uh, and uh, and the laws were very uh, strict. For example, back in the day, if you stole and you were caught, you'd have to go in front of the elders, get a knife, and cut your finger off. <sighs> that was uh, a sign for the rest of the communities all over the place. Mm-hmm. Will know that you stole. Oh. If you commit adultery, uh, and then they knew, and then they, when you committed adultery, for example, you were sent into the bush to fend for yourself with nothing. Like no clothes and stuff as well, No right? clothes, but nothing. just no knife. Oh, okay. You can't hunt, nothing. If you survive that for three months, you get back. You can come back. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. But it was a discipline, and that discipline is if you don't want that happened to you you just don't do it so you policed yourself mm-hmm. you didn't need police to tell you what's right and wrong you already knew you had the community yes mm-hmm. so elders were very very good with that kind of stuff what's the state of blueberry now and how are things in the community now with what you can talk about <clears throat> in the 70s in 1977 blueberry changed we were the Doig River and Blueberry was one band. We split the two bands in 19, October of 1977. And that changed everything for both communities. We were the Fort Chain John Beaver Band. And that band used to be just north of Fort Chain John here on the Motney Coolies there. From there all the way that way and goes all the way to Charlie Lake. Goes all the way to Beaton towards Cecil Lake up there. And... Um, we split the bands, and the politics of the band changed. All of a sudden, now Indian Affairs came in and said, "Here's welfare, here's family allowance," and we said, "No." The elders said, "No, we're not taking it. If we took it, that means you want something, so we're not going to have nothing." So it was held off for many years, where we wouldn't take that uh, money because they were basically putting us on welfare. Now that we know what was happening, before then we didn't know, like, uh, a check with a number. Nobody knew what the hell is that piece of paper that don't look like money. Mm-hmm. But mm, suppose, it wasn't cash. Yeah, supposedly it's like, the only thing we recognized back in the day is that $5 a year treaty money they used to give us once a year. $5 once a year? $5 once a year. Everybody gets 5 bucks. Every woman 
child and elder and that's that's what they gave us <clears throat> so the politics became and changed our lives Indian Affairs federal government changed our lives right there now they said you got to have elections for chief and council they made rules the Indian Act and our within a 10-year period I would say we learned to um, to vote who's going to be leader and then when money came into action that's when it just divided the people because whoever was in power got the money so it was difficult we didn't have a lot of understanding and um, the elders hung on there as long as they could when the people start taking in power they forgot about the people so you guys just had an election recently a new chief in blueberry I'm not getting too much into it, but it's, it's well known there was court situations between counselors in Blueberry. Is that kind of show the effects of what that power and, and what money has done, um, specifically for Blueberry, but probably with other First Nations across the country as well? Yes. We always say <clears throat> money is evil, root of all evil. And it's true. The more power you give to the government it's what we call our leaders now they forget about the people based on how much money they make and it's an unfortunate thing but that's the way life is today so we try to make rules try to make changes for the better and right now for example and it's unfortunate for me to say this but in the last five years that our previous chief that was in there Never had one band general meeting in five years. There was no transparency, no accountability. In 1998, our first settlement for the Motney claims was 75 million each for the Doigan Blueberry. Well, in Blueberry, since 1998 till today, 75 million, I think it was. We have nothing. We have one building to show for. No economy, no economics, no hardly anybody's educated. Um, the judge said it the best way here a year ago when I went to court. He said, if you put uneducated people in a situation like this, and you have advisors who are lawyers and consultants, should advise the band properly. Mm -hmm. If if these guys don't have the education and stuff, they don't understand the system and um, what's supposed to happen. <clears throat> because the trust that was put in place, I was part of the trustees back in the 1998, and I wouldn't let money go to the council unless they put a proposal. And when they put a proposal in there, how are you going to pay that back? It was like a bank. We treated it that way. And they would have to pay back with interest. They didn't like that. So they got rid of us. And then the council put themselves as trustees. 
Well, they used it like a piggy bank over those years. We have nothing to show for it today from that settlement. What about the cumulative impacts case, though? I know, I know financially, but you talk about like growth in general. Isn't that big? Like, uh... it's huge. Mm-hmm. And right now, with the new chief that we just elected, it's fantastic. She is so damn good. I'm telling you that mm-hmm. we're going to uh, like the transparency is there, accountability is going to be there. She's trying to do the right thing. And We've stuff been like trying that. to get Judy on yeah. to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, she, she's so busy. <laughs> yeah, she is super busy. And um, uh, we're trying to develop new trust. We're trying to uh, clean up the what has happened. Uh, we learned from it. Uh, we've been telling Judy that we do not want to have anything like that in the past. We want to make sure this is protected from the future for a future generation. When we talk about self-governing process, I see the band myself uh, as being having an economic base. I see it having a land base. If we're going to go in self-governing processes, we have to have those essentials in order for us as First Nation to be self-governing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're governed by the government. Well, yeah. I think that's the perfect way to end the episode. And thank you so much for doing this and for talking with us. It was a wonderful conversation and it was really great to meet you. It was longest one yet. Yeah. Longest one. A lot we of hit great a stories. I, I love I love talking with you, Clarence. Thank you so much for stopping by. Oh, I um, uh, appreciate you guys inviting me and stuff like that. And I appreciate uh, their share of small knowledge that I have in, in this entire, in its entirety itself. Uh, there's so much that I still can talk about, and there's so much that we both can uh, do something about in terms of uh, long, the long process. My biggest worry is our kids and our grandkids in the future. That's my biggest worry. What can we leave behind for people like us that can do something? And what is that something? Get together. It's a simple thing. I mean, people... Uh, our talk about uh, forgiveness it's the most simplest thing to do on earth is to forgive somebody say hey I forgive you and let's get on with life but a lot of them their pride or or whatever it is that's ailing them or whatever hatred or or something they heard oh and then they hold on to that grudge no let it go forgive and let's get on with life and I hear a lot of people say, oh, get rid of the treaties, get rid of the bans and stuff like that. Well, in 1899, when the treaties were sa- signed, this land was First Nations. When um, the, the uh, uh, first settlers came up here and, uh, the, uh, what's his name, Alexander, or uh, they started uh, coming into this land, well, it was all First Nation lands in the first place. So I always say to people, we still, our belief as First Nations is we share the land. It's always been our belief. We never believed in ownership of a property. We always believed in sharing that land. That's the way we are. We never own, we, we don't believe in... But you never owned specific land, like, way back in the 1800s. Like, you didn't own that land. You just were on that land, right? Yes, It wasn't until we were, the government decided to, this is now this, our land, that it became... Yes. Yeah. So, we used to invite, my grandfather used to tell me, my grand, great-grandfather used to, his stories were that 
they would bring in the settlers and help them hunt. They would help them, stuff like that. They lived together. There was no such a thing as, oh, you can't step into my property. It was just working together, he used to tell us. Well, it's the same concept we can use in today's world if we really wanted to. Um, but now the government has taught us to fight each other, to argue with each other about this is mine, this is not yours, when we should be looking at the bigger picture in the world here and in Canada across the country saying, look, at, let's step back a little bit here, let's make some really good changes to help ourselves. And I think it starts with having conversations like this. Yes. And maybe you'll come on again. Never know. 100%. We, we, say, we would, we would we love to, to. We say that to every guest for the exact reason of we want Because to. it seems like there's always so yeah, much more. Exactly. Like, it's yeah. like we still, we haven't gotten to have the full conversation yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I appreciate you guys inviting me. Make sure you guys subscribe to Before the Peace using your favorite podcast app or at energeticcity.ca slash podcasts. If you have if you have a guest or program idea, email before the piece at moosefm.ca. And here is the clip from Clarence's <laughs> story about the elders in Southern BC. Enjoy and bye-bye. They won't close the door in the room. Said somebody gonna mug you guys. No, no, we're gonna you know, they're from the bush over here. They know anything about stuff like that. Like the hotel room they yeah. wouldn't lock? Oh, my goodness. They wouldn't close goodness. the doors. But anyway, so we went to the movies. We left them there. They said they're going to be fine. They won't go nowhere. They don't know anything about the city. They know anything about the elevator. They said, uh, they told us, these, these white people, they're really magic. I said, how? He said, we get in one door, we move, and we come out someplace else. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so freaking adorable. I love yeah. that. <laughs> That's, they said, wow, they're magic. So anyways, so we took them to the room, put them in a room, and then we're staying all on the same level, like the same floor, right? So we decided to go to the movies. So we went to the movies. So we sat in the movie till the movie was over about 9 o'clock. Came back to the room. Can't find them. Doors open. We went down the hallway. We went to every single level in that hotel. I mean, we looked in the exits, and we went downstairs. Did you guys see any elders coming out of there, the front people? There was a lady and a guy. They said no, and then they got scared. So we phoned the cops. They said, just hang on. Oh, my gosh. And then we're going like, what if they went out to, uh, on the streets? We'll never find them because, you know, like, Vancouver. they wouldn't know where to go. Everything's because every, to them, everything's from uh, looks the same, they said. So we looked and looked and looked and looked up and down the stairs, checked every room. We checked every single place that we can check in the hotel, right to the top level, to the bottom. So we're about to call the cops and we gave up. And then, uh, and then I said, geez, there's one place we haven't checked is the basement because it, there's a basement button on there. So... I guess my estimation is so I went down there and when you when the doors open the lounge is right there and then they're watching the girls in front stripping and then they were uh oh my god that's the the I was freaked out and at the same time smiling because <laughs> the smile in their faces 
was priceless. Oh my God, they're just. I said, you can't be in here. They said, no, we're not leaving. <laughs> so, and then uh, the people that ran the bar there gave them glasses of beer. Eh? And they said, oh my God, these elderly people are so adorable. There's three of them. They're just drinking beer. And <laughs> said, Grandpa. Um, the, one of them was my dad. Uh, he, that's the one that raised me. He's an elder. I said, Dad, let's go. He said, nope. Me no go. And stay. I said, oh, no, we're in trouble. Eh? So uh, we told the guys to cut them off, and they wouldn't cut them off. They're just, they didn't even order beer, I guess. They just sat down, and nobody, they couldn't translate. So, you know, whatever they did, the best way they know how to understand them. And they barely spoke English. A few words, that's it. So they sat there, and uh, I said, how did you guys get down here? He said, I don't know. They blame each other. And I don't know what he pressed, but he pressed something, and <laughs> his buttons came on, and we're pressing them. And he said, first, we stopped and all the way down. He said, so they must have hit the basement, and when the elevator stopped in the bottom, they opened up and heard her <laughs> in the lounge. The promised land. <laughs> That's what it was for them, promised land. Oh my God! We heard so many stories after we came back about that. That how the, the the white man was magical, and how you can just go in one room and come out, and there's women there and beer. <laughs> you know, they didn't have to pay for beer. Beer back then was probably, I think, was seventy five cents a glass, of beer. And uh, oh my gosh, that's so cheap! Like if you go to a bar now, you're looking at like what seven bucks? Yeah, and. Uh, in the elevator. Do you know those escalators? Steps that move? So we try. We put my grandpa on there. But he wouldn't step with his other leg. So his leg started going like this. He's just screaming at us. And, and you know how those uh, things you hang on to move too, right? So he's moving. He's hanging on to that too. So he's moving. Look at my leg. My leg. <laughs> I said, Grandpa, you got to move your legs when you're on this. He said, no, look at this magic. They said. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love that. Thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast. Energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to energeticcity.ca slash join.